Amen. Let's get our Bibles out and open to the book of Galatians. Uh, We have the privilege of studying through the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 3 today. You can find that on page 1338 of the Pew Bible in front of you. You know, choir, it just goes to prove you really don't need that music to go along with you anyway. You just sing it. See there? Just sing it. Just sing it. Well, let's see, this makes our sixth week in the book of Galatians, and it's been a a very exciting time uh, for me personally, and I know that many of you have just uh, been really uh, enlightened by what's in Galatians. Some of you have been uh, talking to me, uh, sending me messages about how uh, much this has helped you to understand things about the Lord and about... Uh, especially about grace and freedom as a Christian. What the book of Galatians does is it it captures this letter, this epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. Well, really just think of modern-day Turkey. There's a group of churches there where the Apostle Paul began spreading the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. They began to... Uh, follow the Lord Jesus, began to form churches, began to walk in the grace and mercy of God. It was just this wonderful, new and exciting time. And then shortly after that, as Paul moved on to uh, go plant more churches, some people came in and began to uh, teach a false gospel. We call them Judaizers. They came in and uh, they weren't denying the reality that the Lord Jesus is Uh, the Savior come to save men from their sins, what they did was they came in and said that now that you're saved, you need to do these other things. You need to, you need to follow the, the ceremonial law. You need to do all the Jewish customs and so on and so forth. And that those things would, uh, would add to your righteousness or would allow you to be righteous. And so they started twisting and perverting the simplicity of the gospel. And so that's the, the setting of the book of Galatians. And we've seen Paul address various issues back and forth and trying to uh, just establish uh, what they need to know and the things that they need to, uh, to remember about how they got to where they are. And so today we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about through the same door. We're going to look at Paul's uh, just encouragement to the Galatians in chapter 3 to, to, to just stop and think about the reality of who God is and what He's done and what they know to be true in their heart, that they've been, they've been deceived, they've been bewitched into believing that they have to live according to works and not by faith alone. So let's pray and then we'll read in Galatians 3 and ask the Lord to bless us. Father, we thank You for this Word. And Lord, we know that it's perfect and inerrant. It's from You for us, Lord God. We need to know and understand that which You say here so deeply, Lord, and we know we can't do that unless You help us. So we're asking You, Lord, to give us ears to hear and hearts that can receive that You might transform us through the reality that we're about to face, Lord. We thank You so much for this gift. In Jesus' name, Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, If in you all nations shall be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things 
which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, what Paul does here is he reverts back to the Old Testament to make the case for the New Testament. Testament. He's using the old covenant to make the case for the new covenant. He's he's trying to make sure that he shuts every door that might lead these believers or lead us today to fall into the trap of trying to justify ourselves by works. You see, when you become a Christian, what happens is you are forgiven of all of your sin that The Bible teaches that Jesus takes the punishment for your sin, that your sin is then forgiven. Your past sin, your current sin, and your future sin is all erased because it's taken by the Lord Jesus. And then His perfect righteous life is then imputed to you. It's given to you in return for your sinful life. The problem is, is that after we become Christians... We still have problems. You see, we're not perfect. You know, it would seem maybe that after this happened, after we become Christians, that, well, well, all of our struggles would go away, that we would stop doing things that we shouldn't do. We would stop thinking things that we shouldn't think. But that's not how it works. We still struggle with controlling our temper. We still find ourselves at times... Fearful. It's still a challenge every day to battle against uh, what's inside of us that, that hates self-control and wants to be unbridled. And so the questions that we have before us this morning are really two that we'll frame all our thoughts around. The first question is this. Well, what is the doorway to faith? Well, what is the doorway that opened up to you and to me? What what is the doorway that God allows us to walk through that puts faith at the forefront of our lives, that allows us to experience this salvation, that allows us to be forgiven of all of our sin, that gives us the confidence and assurance that we're going to be okay, that we'll be with Him forever? Well, what is that doorway and how does one walk through it? And then really the primary focus will be, well, once we've walked through that door, the second question is, well, what's the doorway to growth? What's the doorway to transformation? What's the doorway that we walk through to become the person that we hoped we'd be when we walked through the first doorway to faith? And you see, over and over and over, the book of Galatians is drawing our attention back to the reality that faith comes straight through the hearing of the gospel. That, that we didn't do anything to earn it, that we don't, we don't deserve it, that we don't fix our problems first and then come to God, that none of those things are, are true, that we, we are simply given the free gift of salvation by the Lord Jesus and the work that He accomplished on our behalf on the cross. But that after that, we still struggle. And it's in that Gap. It's in that space where it really begins to cause us all sorts of problems because we begin to doubt our salvation. We're not sure if we're actually saved. If we're a Christian, we we don't understand. We don't know what to do. And that's when we start grasping for straws if we're not careful. And we wind up in the exact predicament that these believers in Galatia find themselves in. So let's talk a little bit about this. The first thing I want us to talk about is what is the doorway to faith? Well, Paul makes that clear. Look at verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed. And we talked a little bit about this last week, that that word bewitched, it means to be hypnotized, to be under a spell, that these false teachers had come to these believers 
and their focus had gotten off of the reality of salvation, that in order to be hypnotized, you have to focus on something else and only that and forget about all, all other things. And so they sort of got focused on the wrong things and they got hypnotized and they started looking at uh, all of the things that they needed to do to make themselves right. And so Paul says, you, you're, you're foolish. How could you possibly fall for that after everything that God has shown you? Verse 2, he says, this only is what I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, you see, remember, he's not talking to, to Jews here. He's talking to Gentile believers. And so they should know this better than anyone. You see, if you grew up in a Jewish culture and you grew up always following the law and always doing the right thing, then when Jesus comes on the scene and offers salvation, you could see where if you were Jewish, you might get a little confused because you had been doing all these things all your life and then you become a Christian. And so you might get confused about, well, did all those things lead me to be able to be a Christian or not? But... The people Paul's talking to could not possibly be confused by that because they were Gentiles. They were com living completely and utterly pagan lives. They're just like me and just like you. And God found them in their utter pagan, disbelieving, rebellious lives. And he saved them through the grace of the gospel. And Paul's simply just drawing their attention that, hey, how did this happen? How did, you, how did you become Christians in the first place? And then Paul draws their attention to this example from Genesis chapter 15. When he makes the, the statement in verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now I want us to think for a minute about the significance of Paul introducing this Old Testament reference here. In Genesis 15, these verses will come up on the screen. Let's read this passage of Scripture. I want you to see what God has to teach us from this. In Genesis 15, after these things, the Bible says, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now remember, Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was, was not someone who was... In fact, he, the Bible tells us that he was a, an idol worshiper. He, he was worshiping false gods. He lived in a pagan country. God comes to him, just comes to him, reveals himself to him, and says, listen, Abram, you, you, you need to hear what I'm about to tell you, that I'm going to use you to do great things. I'm going to be your shield, and I'm going to be your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said... To the, he said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? So you know that, that Abraham and his wife Sarai did not have children. And so the big concern was is that he didn't have an heir for his, his household. And that was very troubling to him that he was the heir of his household was going to be someone outside the, the scope of his family. Verse 3, then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the Lord God came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one will come from your own body that will be your heir. So God promises that he's going to have a son. Then he brought him outside and said, look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And verse 6 is the quote Paul uses. And so Abraham believed in God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And so Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, bring a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So then he brought all of these to him, verse 10, and he cut them in two right down the middle and he placed each one on opposite sides. Verse 17, so it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, here's what's going on. God reveals himself to Abraham, this pagan, unbelieving, idol worshiping man. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to I'm going to use you. I'm going to I'm going to reward you greatly. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And Abraham is 
a little bit confused by this. Well, well, how's that going to happen? I don't even have a, a descendant. He says, well, I'm going to give you a descendant. Well, how do I know that you mean what you say? And so God makes a covenant with Abraham. He takes these animals and, and he has Abraham slice them in half and put one on the left side, one half on the right side, so on and so forth of each animal down the line. And, and the Old Testament covenant would be that you would, you and the person that you're making a covenant with would pass between these severed animals and you would be making a declaration that if you do not follow through with your part of the covenant, that may what happened to these animals happen to you. So it's a very graphic illustration of the seriousness of this agreement. We're not just doing a little pinky promise here, okay? We got animals sliced in half and we're walking through and we're saying, now, if we don't do what we say we're going to do, may this happen to us. And God appears in this as a smoking pot and passes between the severed animals, saying to Abraham, I will do that which I say I will do. You can trust me, Abraham. You can trust me. And so Paul is drawing their attention back to that moment that these Judaizers who are trying to get them to follow this new uh, gospel of works know all too well. Now, why does Paul go back to this passage to explain how a person becomes a Christian? Why? Because look at what it says. Genesis 15, 6, And he believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. What did he believe? I mean, what, what, what was it that Abraham believed? All Abraham believed was the promise of God. That's all he had. That's all he knew. He didn't have anything else. He simply believed the promise of God. And so according to Paul, when a person believes the promise of God, when he believes that which God has said, then they're believing God. They're believing the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God has made a way to save the world. What is the promise that God made to Abraham? One is going to come through you that's going to bless the whole world. The gospel is to believe what God says. So now back to Galatians chapter 3. Notice verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. Do you see that? Preach the gospel saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. God tells Abraham, I'm going to save the world through a descendant of yours. So salvation cannot come through achievement. It can't come through attainment. That's impossible because look at the story. But salvation will only happen by divine intervention through one person. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15. And Paul is merely just making a lock-tight case that if it's true, which it is, that Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That, that, that's an accounting term, accounted to him. Or in the old King James, it said it was reckoned to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. It, it means being credited to your account, that what you didn't have would be accredited to you. So when Abraham believes God, he didn't become righteous. He was accounted as righteous. Now that's important because that's sort of the problem we have. We become a Christian and we don't become righteous. We're accredited as righteous. We get the righteousness of God, but we don't become completely righteous. We still struggle. We still make mistakes. We're, we still have ups and downs. You see, the same scenario that begins in Genesis 15 is playing out right before us in Galatians chapter 3, which is playing out right before us in this very room today. Abraham didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. All he did was believe. And righteousness was transferred into his account. The same way you became a Christian if you're a Christian this morning. You believed God and righteousness was credited, transferred into your account. So the doorway to faith is believing the promise of God to save the world through one man, which is the gospel. That's the doorway to faith. So what's the doorway to growth? Number two, the doorway to growth. So if we get 
accounted as righteous, if the righteousness of God comes to us by believing the gospel, then how do we begin to live more righteous? Because that's the question that many of us in this room need to answer. I mean, then what, what comes next? I mean, now that I'm in the kingdom of God, how do I advance in the kingdom of God? Paul is saying to the Galatians, listen, you have been set free. You have utterly and completely been set free, but now you're having a problem staying free. The gospel has come to you, it's set you free, and you're struggling to stay free in Jesus Christ. It's like so many of us, we, we, we come to Christ and we say, well, well I'm saved, and, but now what? And that's the moment when we take our eyes off of what saved us and we start looking at other things. And we start seeing what other people are doing. We start listening to what other people are saying. And we get wrapped up in all of these things that we shouldn't be wrapped up in. You see, and there's a, there's a dynamic that's at play that Satan will use so effectively in our lives if we're not careful. We become Christians. And, and initially it seems too good to be true. It's just unbelievable that... You mean that I'm totally forgiven, that everything I've ever done is, is wiped away. I mean, that is hard to get your head around. I'm forgiven completely? And that when I take my last breath in this life, my next breath will be in heaven with God forever? And even though I, I, I still know the thoughts that go through my mind, I still have all the memories of all the terrible things I've done. And worse than that, I'm pretty sure there's some not so good things in my future. And you see, what happens is we, we think, wow, it just seems too good to be true. And so then as we begin to walk as a Christian, our behavior validates our feeling that it's too good to be true. And as soon as we start messing up, the voice in our head says, you see, I told you you're not a Christian. You see, I told you. You see, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't have done that. You see, if you, really, if you were really saved, wouldn't you be acting like it right now? How, how many times have we said, you know, if you're saved, you should act like it. What does that mean? Would somebody please tell me what does that mean? I want a definition of that, acting saved. But that's how we, that's what we say. And so, these Galatians are just like us. And they're struggling. They're struggling with, their, with selfishness. They're struggling with gossip. They're, they're struggling with temptation. So they're thinking, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not doing the right thing. And so what do they do? They start looking around at other things and they, and they look at other people and they see other people doing things. And those people come in and say, now here's the problem you have. You need to be doing this and this and this and this. And so then they start doing it. And then pretty soon they've completely walked away from the gospel and they've just become these rule followers, these doers. Now, answer this question. How exactly are the false teachers in Galatia telling these believers to move forward in their relationship with God? They're simply saying, try harder. That's the message of works. That's the message of legalism. You need to try harder. You need to, you need to grit your teeth and try harder, which is the essence of being bewitched. It's the essence of being spellbound. It's the essence of deception. It is the epitome of being hypnotized into some false doctrine. You run around, you are trying so hard, you're trying to do all, and your life will be marked by nothing but discouragement. You will never be satisfied. You will never feel victorious. And your life will, will be void of peace, which is the mark of a true believer. And the sad thing is, is that most of us in this room know what I'm saying is true from experience. We had to learn this the hard way. And there's some of you in this room who are sort of on your maiden voyage. You're just sort of leaving the dock of salvation. And my prayer is that this is going to save you so much 
suffering and struggle. You know, I used to love to watch the show Extreme Home Makeover. And for a while, I didn't really know, you know, I was like, well, what is it about the show that that gets my attention? I mean, the thing is, is that every single time the crowd would start chanting, move that bus, move that bus. As soon as the bus moved, I'm bawling. I'm, I'm crying my head off. Every time. I don't even know these people. And I'm in there, look at that house. And I was thinking, what is wrong with me? But here's what they do. First, they introduce you to the family. You see, so you get to, you get to, to know the family. And you get to see the, the circumstance that the family's in. And there's always been some, some uh, you know, there, there's some great hardship in this family. And it, it may be that there was a death of a loved one, or it may be that there was a terrible sickness or some terrible accident. But whatever the, the case may be, it, there, there was something that caused this great need. But you're introduced to this family that utterly and completely finds himself in a situation that they they simply cannot rectify. They can't fix it. They don't have the power, the resources, the ability to solve the problem that they find themselves in. And you see that in the story. And so then, out of nowhere, comes this army of volunteers and and hundreds of thousands of dollars of stuff, and they erect this beautiful home that that these people could have never had in a million years, and, and they just give it to them for free. And they just say, here... Be blessed. And so suddenly it's like what they never could have done on their own is now theirs. And and I'm bawling. And I'm thinking, I think I know where they got that idea. I think I know where the concept came of people who had utterly and completely no way to solve their own problem. And then suddenly, just by a free gift, Problem solved. Family mended. But what happens after the filming is done? What happens after the episode is over? You see, the family has this new house. And it's a house just like your house, just like my house. And as time goes on, the sun beats down on it and the paint begins to crack and... The gutters start rusting and storms come and take their toll on it. And then the shingles get loose and the roof starts leaking and problems start happening to the house. But you see, Ty's gone with his camcorder and his crew of people in the bus. They've left town. They're not there anymore. And the family's left with this house that they sort of have to fix on their own. A lot of us think salvation works like that, that... God swoops down and solves this problem that we can't solve ourselves, and then He just leaves, and we're left there to figure it all out on our own. But what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. You've got that all wrong. That God comes down, He, he grants us everything we could never have dreamt of in salvation. But then every single morning, When we open our eyes, there He is with us, inhabiting the house, taking care of us, leading us, guiding us, directing us. He hasn't left us alone to fend for ourselves. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. Look at Galatians 3, verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing of faith? I want you to take note of something. Paul says, he who supplies. It's present tense. He didn't say he who supplied. You remember the one when you walk through the door of faith? Well, that one, you know, but he's gone now. No, he who supplies right now today in this very moment. He's supplying right now what you need. He's the one who's who through the Spirit is working to do things that are beyond your comprehension and imagination right now. 
Paul's saying that the same doorway that you walk through to salvation is the same door that will sustain you in salvation. That grace doesn't just come by for a visit, just just drop a bomb of blessing on your life and then leave. Grace sustains you every moment of every day thereafter. Grace never departs. When it comes, it, it, it sets up shop. It makes home. And it stays. You see, how then is it that we become more loving, more patient, more obedient, more self-controlled? How does this happen? The same way Abraham did. It's by believing the promises of God. It's not by trying harder. Which brings up the question that some of you will ask, especially if you're still wrestling through this. Because your heart hears what I'm saying, but your, your, your flesh on the other side is, is struggling a little bit. So what are you saying, Pastor? Do you, do you, should I just, you know, lay on the couch and take it easy? Is that what... This is all about? Well, should all Christians strive to keep the moral law of God? Of course you should. Of course you should. But the question is not, should you strive to live a moral life? The question is, how are you going to live a moral life? That's the question. How? How exactly are you going to Accomplish this. Well, Paul answers that question in Titus chapter 2. Interestingly enough, the very person he's writing to is the one he brought before the council to prove that salvation had come to the Gentiles. In Titus chapter 2, Paul says this, verse 11, "...it's the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men." teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What is it that teaches us to do that? The grace of God. Not the works of the law, but the grace of God. That it's the grace of God that sets up shop in our life, that dwells in us, that reminds us every day that we couldn't have ever earned it, we couldn't have ever achieved it, that it was a free gift of God in our moment of hopelessness that's with us every moment and that will teach us how to live a God-honoring life. You see, it's not about what we need to do. It's about how we're going to get there. It's about what is driving us. What is the compulsion? We need to understand that the Bible says over and over and over in hundreds of different ways that a Christian is motivated, compelled by love. That we do good things, not because we have to, but because we want to. And that when we do something because we have to, it's of no good. But when we do something because we want to, God blesses it. Because He doesn't bless what we do, He blesses why we do it. But it just doesn't add up in our human heart. We, we rage against it. And so what happens is we... We take our eyes off the cross and what Christ did for us because we think, well, I've already checked that box. I've become a Christian. And we start looking elsewhere. And as soon as we take our eyes off that, you're going to see a bunch of other Christians. And so you start seeing what they're doing. And you start looking at what they're saying. And you start listening. And, and it's not that, that that's bad. It's just that the problem is, is that if you're not in an environment of grace, if you're not in a place where grace is lifted up and, and held high before you on a regular basis, you're going to fall into this thing where you start thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure because my behavior is telling me that maybe this is too good to be true. So I'm not really confident. So what I need to do to get confident is I need to feel like I'm okay. The only way I can feel like I'm okay is I have to have some grid to make me okay. Which means I have to know people that are worse than me for me to be okay. Because if everyone I know is better than me, then I'm not okay. And so i got to get in an environment where we're all competing to be better. Now, I don't have to be the best. Now, there's some people that are super freaks, and they got to be the best. Most of us just need to be better than a couple people. Forget the ones that are trying to be the best. 
Just better than a couple people. If I'm better than a couple people, then I feel okay. But the problem is, is that now our eyes are on the wrong thing and we're competing with, with each other, trying to do all these things, all these works of the law, and we're missing the point of the whole thing. I'm just telling you right now. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You cannot live a God-honoring life by compulsion. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't. You can't be a forgiving person because you have to. You, you can't be a loving person because you have to. I mean, think about it. If I told you, listen, I love my kids because I have to. Immediately you're thinking, ooh. I mean, try it. Go home and tell your spouse, I love you because I have to. See how that works out for you. So how did we bring this into Christianity? No, no, I love you because I want to. I love you because of what God has done in me. Because He's loved me, I want to love you. Because He's forgiven me, I want to forgive you. Because He's been generous to me, I want to be generous to you. That it's because of what He's done in me that I'm compelled by love to pass that to you. So the door of faith is believing the promise of God. It's the gospel. The door of growth is the same door. Believing the grace of God in the gospel. Believing the promise of God. When every time you think, every time you sit down and read the Bible and you read something new and you, you read a command in Scripture, you shouldn't sink and go, oh, no, it's another thing i got to do. Oh, that's not Christianity. Listen, when, whenever you read and you find some new command that you weren't uh, familiar with before, then you, you read that and you go, hey, what's the promise that goes with that? Because you know it's true. You know it's true. How do you know it's true? Because it's never failed you and it never will. And when you look through the lens of grace, you can't get enough of it. And then you start getting mad at people for encroaching on your Bible time. You start saying, you know, you're trying to get more time to spend with God because you can't get enough of all these amazing promises. That everywhere there's an imperative, there's an indicative. Everywhere God says, do this, He tells you how to do it. He tells you why to do it. He explains it. I mean, don't you see? That you have this loving, on one hand, we say, we, our, my God is a loving Heavenly Father. He loves me. He cares for me. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's always good. He always does what's good for me. But then we turn right around and we push back from what He says as if it's some kind of torment or torture. Now, wait a minute. If He is what He says He is, then wouldn't we want what He says? Yes. So if he says to you, hey, you don't need to do this anymore. Then, you, then what in it, what's in you that would say, well, I, just, I, I don't believe that. I, I don't think I can do that. I, I don't think that's what that means. I don't think. Shouldn't you say, wow, well, well based on who you are, based on your character and nature, based on your perfect track record, if you say I shouldn't do this, then it must be the absolute highest, best thing for me not to do it. So I'm, I'm about to do everything I can not to do that anymore. And the good news is, is that I know in advance that as I begin the journey, if I fail, if I stumble and fall, you're going to be there to pick me up and dust me off and, and care for me and love me and keep me on the process. That so you didn't just say, hey, go get that done. You said, hey, come on with me as we work together to get this done. You see the difference? And then now you see why Paul is so irate about this. You foolish Galatians, you've been bewitched. The greatest thing in the universe happened to you, and then you just left it behind for some nonsense, for some way of life that can never, ever bring fulfillment, never bring satisfaction. Never. So that's the door of faith and the door of growth. And then thirdly, he brings up as a, a warning, a reminder, the doorway of destruction. Look at verse 10. He says, For as many 
as are of the works of the law, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11, But that no one is justified by law in the sight of God is evident, for the just will live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by faith. Now, when he says in verse 10, that under the works of the law is going to be a, there's going to be a curse. The the word curse it's a pronouncement of judgment. I, I think that's obvious. It, it's it's a it, it means doom. It's it's a devotion to destruction. When when you are cursed, you are you are on a path of destruction. Is what is what Paul's saying. Now there's reasons why. Being under the law, being being misled or bewitched by this uh, salvation by works, by trying to strive to please God through this law, is is a curse. Is it will doom you to destruction. It can't work. Two primary reasons. There's about a hundred and fifty, but how about I just give you two, okay? Because I know how you get when you're hungry. So let's just go with two, okay? Number one. The law is a curse because it's contrary to human behavior. That everything in the law, everything in the moral law of God is counter to your natural behavior and my natural behavior. That I didn't, there's nothing in me naturally, okay? Tony, before salvation, did not wake up in the morning and seek to love my enemies. No. If you hurt me, I want to hurt you worse so you wouldn't hurt me again. That was the way it worked. I didn't wake up in the morning and you didn't wake up in the morning trying to, trying to uh, burden because there was unforgiveness in your heart. We just were wrapped up in seething in bitterness because of what someone had done to harm us. We weren't even considering the fact of forgiving them because they deserved it, didn't they? Sure. You see, it's it's... It's the opposite of what we would naturally do. So if you think that you can go in a direction that is the opposite of what you would naturally do on your own without any help, you are insane. It's impossible. I mean, forget the Ten Commandments. Just one, all we need is the one commandment. Just pick any of them and we're doomed. We're doomed. So you see, if you begin to operate under the law, all you can be is cursed. Because it's humanly impossible to follow. You simply cannot do it. The second reason why the law is a curse is because there's no consolation prize. You see, here's the problem with the law. And Paul quotes exactly what it said in verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in A-L-L. All. See, that's what you got to understand. There is no consolation prize in the law that says, you know what? Congratulations. You tried really hard. It was a great effort. You know, you fell short, but hey, you gave it a real go. So we're going to go ahead and give you the award anyway. You see, there's not the whole politically correct movement in the law of God where everybody's going to get a trophy. Well, we don't don't keep score. Everyone's a winner here. No, no, that's not how the law works. The way the law works is if you're going to keep it, you have to keep every single bit of it. And if you fail at one tiny little piece, you fail at all of it. Now... I don't know about you, but that just seems like the dumbest endeavor in the world for any of us to take. I mean, really, even if today, in faith, all of our sin could be forgiven and we would get a fresh start. If God gave you a fresh, clean slate today to start brand new as if you had never, ever done a thing wrong, are you going to bet your eternity that you can go from today till the end of your life without violating any piece of the law? 
No way, I'm not doing that. So then I thought, well, what would happen if that was the only way? Well, and then I thought, well, if, if I preached a gospel where Jesus forgave all of our sin right in the moment that we're standing, but then it was up to the law to forgive us from here forward, that we had to follow it perfectly, then basically I would preach the gospel to people, they would receive that gospel, and then everyone would immediately start hoping and praying that they died right now. We'd all be standing out in John Clark Road waiting for somebody to run over us. But then if we did that, we'd violate the law. Uh Uh-oh, we're out. So what are we going to do? We just maybe stay in this room and not leave and just sit here and just hope that the, 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 the roof collapses on top of us. You see how insane it is? Listen, the law is a curse. One more thing about the law. Have you ever wondered to yourself, I'm, I'm not being critical, okay? I'm, I'm just trying to be informational. Pretty good, huh? I probably just broke the law right there, but that's okay. <laughs> Luckily, I'm under grace. Where do all these grumpy Christians come from? You ever thought about that? I mean, you read the Bible and you just think, hmm, where do all these grouchy, grumpy, cranky, judgmental, angry, but I'm a Christian. The law. Listen, just understand, when, when you meet them, other places, <laughs> just say in your heart, just say in your heart, God, help them to get out from the curse of the law. It's the curse of the law. They may be just as saved as you are, just as saved as I am, but they're under the curse of the law. They may not be, I don't know, but the law is a curse. And it'll ruin you. It'll destroy you. And Paul is trying to get them to see. But look at what he says. All hope is not lost. He says in verse 13, but Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Praise God. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That word redeems, it it means to buy out, to to redeem, to buy out of slavery. That, That we've been redeemed out of slavery. And the way that happened was God sent his son to be a curse for us. That the curse of the law was what was on his shoulders. That he came and lived the perfect life and defeated the law. He obliterated the curse of the law for everyone who would come under his wings. For everyone who would be sheltered under his sacrifice. Don't you see that? That we've been redeemed because God became our curse. You don't you see the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What does that mean? That, it, that in Jewish culture, a criminal would be stoned to death for committing a crime. They would be tied to a tree or to a pole and they'd be killed, usually by stoning. And then their body would be left tied to that pole until sun went down. Because when the sun went down, it was a symbol that God had turned his back on that person. And so, the Bible is quoting Deuteronomy 21.13. And saying, Paul's saying, listen, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God hung on a tree for you. He became a curse for you to redeem you out of slavery. And that look, in verse 14, look at the next verse. That the blessing of Abraham, what is that? Remember, it was accounted unto him as righteousness. That righteousness was credited into his account by no works of his own. All he did was believe the promise of God. And God put righteousness in his account. That that blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that that's true. That every one of us today, we have the opportunity for the blessing of Abraham to come upon us 
in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Don't you see? The law is a curse. Jesus bore our curse to bring the blessing of Abraham to the world. That salvation was for the purpose of God blessing the world. And how did He promise to do that? Through one man who would be of the descendants of Abraham, which is exactly what He did. So if Abraham believed, not knowing, not knowing an inkling of what you and I know, not even, couldn't even imagine in a million years the information that we have to look back and to validate the faithfulness and trustworthiness of the God who says this, He believed how much more than should we walk By faith. Should we celebrate the grace of God on our lives? He redeemed us by paying our debt. Making His Son the curse. For you and for me. That the door of salvation. The door that leads to eternal life. The door that would restore men with God. Was now open because of what Jesus did on the cross. But more than that, that the door was also open that God would come and dwell in us. In the here and now. That we wouldn't be left alone to figure this out. It's the same door that saved us. It's the same door that sustains us. That's what Paul wants you to see this morning. Everything you need for life and godliness is found right there. In the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God. Not by works, lest anyone would boast. In 1829, there was a man named George Wilson. George Wilson was a postal worker. Sorry, guys. And him and one of his compadres concocted this scheme whereby they were going to rob a mail train. And so they set everything up. And since he worked for the post office, he knew all the ins and outs. And so they set up their plan and they executed their robbery of this mail. The only problem is, is that they didn't account for this one guard who happened to be there who was standing in their way. And so they, in a moment of panic, they killed him. Well, they were arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. They were, at this time, sentenced to be hanged. And so George's sidekick was went to trial first, and he was then executed. Well, while George Wilson sat waiting his time of execution, people began writing letters to the president. They began writing letters uh, to Andrew Jackson and and asking that he would be lenient on Mr. George, that he would let him go. It was his first offense. And there was a a lot of political pressure at this time to move away from uh, capital punishment, especially by hanging. And so that played into it. Also that Mr. Wilson knew a lot of influential people, that played into it. And so this went on till about 1830, almost 1831. And then finally, President Jackson succumbed to the pressure and he signed a pardon for George Wilson. And when they went and got George Wilson out of his prison cell and they said, the president has pardoned you, you will not die. You simply have to serve a, uh, I think, a 15 or 20 year sentence for a much lesser crime and you'll be able to go free. Mr. Wilson refused. He said, I will not accept the pardon. Now, we're not exactly sure if it was the guilt over the crime that he had committed. Uh, We're not exactly sure what happened. All we know is that it's the first time it's ever happened in our history that someone rejected a presidential pardon. And so then the question became, well, now what do we do? We never thought this would ever happen. And so they began arguing about, well, now... Can you legally reject a presidential pardon? So the case went before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court deliberated on whether or not you could actually reject a presidential pardon. And so Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's decision 
And this is what he said, I quote, A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. And so shortly after that, George Wilson was hanged to death with a signed pardon in his name. But he refused to receive it. You see, every single one of us in here was born under the law. The noose of the law was around our necks from the moment we were born. And Jesus Christ came to pardon us from that curse. But you have to accept the pardon for it to apply to your life. You see, the wages of sin are death. But the free gift of God, the pardon of God is eternal life. And the first and biggest mistake any of us could ever make is to reject that pardon for whatever reason. To reject that pardon because you've been hurt in the past by people who said they were Christians. To reject that pardon because you you didn't believe that it could possibly be true. See, whatever your reason, whatever your hesitation is from accepting this pardon, maybe to reject the pardon because you are convinced that You're not guilty. That you don't deserve the sentence that you've been given. And so therefore you reject the pardon. How many people reject the pardon that's been written in their name for some reason that to them makes a lot of sense but end up like George Wilson? The second biggest mistake we could make this morning would be to accept the pardon and then to turn right around and live our lives as if we'd never been pardoned. I mean, that would be the most insane thing that anybody could ever do. To be given a chance that they never thought they could have been given. To be granted grace that they couldn't even have conceived of. And then to walk away from that pinnacle moment in their life and live as if that had never happened, as if everything was back up to them again, as if, as if every day was about what they could do in their own strength or what they could accomplish or how, how many people would think good of them. Listen, folks. He became a curse for you. For you. So that noose would be cut off your neck. That you could live in the freedom of Christ. That you don't have to perform for me or anybody else. That you in Christ are okay. You're okay. And that you can wake up every day motivated. Motivated to live for His glory simply by what He's done For you, for you, don't reject the pardon. Don't turn your back on the most amazing opportunity the universe has ever known. It's right before you in the gospel. It's right there. The God of Genesis 15, the God of Galatians chapter 3 is the God of this very moment. Everything He's ever said He will do, He has done. You can trust Him. You can believe His promise. They won't let you down. Let's stand, bow our heads. Just in a moment of retrospection of what the Lord has shown us today, let's just pause, consider what we've heard, what He said and give our hearts an opportunity and honesty and sincerity to respond. Father, I thank You for the Gospel. And Lord, I thank You for the testimony of my faith family, Lord. So many of us in this room have been set free from 
a lifetime of performing and exertion and striving in our own strength only to find ourselves empty and failing. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the grace that you bestow upon us, Lord God, that just keeps giving and giving and giving. We thank you for it, Lord. Father God, we pray right now that every single person in this room would run to the free pardon that you offer, would run to the reality that all they need to do is believe the promise of God and it will be counted unto them as righteousness. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you, Lord. May they never live another day under the curse of the law. Father God, may every one of us that know you walk daily in the grace that brought us into this relationship. Depend daily on that grace to sustain us through this relationship. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. So, Father God, we just pray you do what only you can do. Thank you for being such a gracious God, such a trusting God. Thank you, Lord, for loving us the way you have. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name.